This past Thursday, our world was shocked and saddened to learn of the passing of Queen Elizabeth of Great Britain. And uh, she was a great lady by all accounts and lived a, a tremendous life, England's longest serving monarch. And uh, many have called her England's greatest monarch. It's been interesting seeing the reactions uh, in the media and the reflections of people sharing, uh, thinking about uh, her life and her reign over Great Britain and her passing and all that it means. Uh, I was interested reading a number of commentators this past, uh, the past few days. One mentioned that with the Queen's passing, it feels like one of the few remaining public figures whose life and worldview were centered on service and duty to family, to her subjects, and to God, is now gone. Another commentator I read said this, the death of the queen feels weighty because it marks the passing not of a woman, but of a world. Think about that for a moment. Here is this woman who served with honor and integrity and dignity for many, many years, and people are reflecting now on what her passing means and the significance of it. And it feels weighty, even to those of us who are American patriots, right? We, we mourn the loss of this woman because it feels as if some kind of seismic shift has taken place in the history of our world. See, the queen was one of the last prominent and public ties to a culture that embraced a biblical Christian worldview, predominantly embraced a biblical Christian worldview. She reminded us of that past when, again, not necessarily everybody was a legitimate follower of Jesus Christ, but it was a day and a time when our culture in the Western world, by and large, valued and accepted the truths of biblical Christianity. Today, however, we find ourselves living in a Romans 1, 18 to 32 world a world where our Western culture has exchanged the truth of God for lies and has embraced myths. And we wonder why we find ourselves in this cultural chaos and confusion with so much division and upheaval. And many people reflecting on the queen's passing, they might not be able to put it into words, but for many, the queen was really one of the last representations of the moorings that our culture used to hold fast to. Moorings like absolute truth. Moorings like morality and a way to know God and his will and plans for our lives. Our culture in many ways has lost that. The queen was never shy about explaining her personal faith in God and, and in Jesus Christ. In fact, she declared throughout her reign that it was her faith in Jesus that gave her that sense of mourning, that sense of confidence, that the sense of service that allowed her to become the great monarch that she was. She spoke regularly about Jesus and his teachings being the, the very bedrock of her faith. She was especially fond of Jesus' teaching, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus taught us how to love our neighbors, a parable that not only taught us to love others as we would want to be loved, but a parable that also represented God's amazing grace and love for us. And she shared that parable many times throughout her life. 
Queen Elizabeth has rightly been regarded as one of England's greatest monarchs. But the reality is Queen Elizabeth understood that there was a king to whom even she must bow, a sovereign greater than any ruler on earth. See, Queen Elizabeth recognized that Jesus Christ is supreme. Christ is supreme. And friends, that's the title of our sermon series this fall here at Lakes Free Church, Christ Supreme. We're going to be studying one of the greatest books in the Bible and one of the the greatest books in the New Testament, the book of Colossians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a a church in a place called Colossae, a a city that no longer exists today, but a city that uh, in Paul's day was in the the very center of what is modern-day Turkey in the Middle East. And Paul wrote this powerful book of Colossians, and in Colossians we find some of the loftiest visions of who Jesus Christ is. And we're going to be studying this reality together this fall. Jesus Christ, supreme over all, creator, savior, ruler, Lord. What does that mean for our lives? What does that mean for our relationships? What does that mean for our calling and and how we live in this world? Paul has much to say to us on these matters in the book of Colossians. As we get into our series this morning, I wanted to start by providing some some background for us on Colossians uh, to help us understand sort of the big picture of what this letter is all about. Uh, Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul from from prison in Rome. Roughly, in roughly 60 AD, Paul had been uh, arrested, he had been uh, put on trial, he had been sent to Rome to face trial before Caesar, and he was awaiting these trials which would ultimately lead to his execution, to his death. And so Paul is in prison in Rome in roughly 60 AD, and during this time in prison, Paul wrote a series of letters Letters to encourage the church and to strengthen the church. And he would send these letters out throughout the world to where gospel-based churches had been planted. One of the letters that he wrote during his imprisonment in Rome was this letter to the Colossians, to the people of Colossae in ancient Turkey who had come to believe in Jesus Christ. The church in Colossae was a church that was started roughly five years earlier, around 55 A.D., And the church in Colossae is an interesting situation because it wasn't started by the Apostle Paul. In fact, the Apostle Paul never even went to Colossae as far as we know. The church in Colossae was founded by a man, as we're going to learn about this morning, a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras had come to faith in Jesus through the ministry of the Apostle Paul while Paul was living and teaching in the city of Ephesus, roughly 100 miles away from Colossae. Epaphras had at some point traveled to Ephesus, had been exposed to Paul and his teaching, had become a follower of Jesus, and had returned back to his home city of Colossae and shared the gospel with people there, and they became Christians, and that's how this church began. Just to show you some context geographically of where we're talking about, Colossae right there is down in the kind of the lower center portion of, uh, of the map. You can see there's a map of the Mediterranean Sea. So you have Israel down in the bottom right-hand corner, Jerusalem, Caesarea. You, you make your way up the coast north of the Mediterranean Sea, and you hit what is today modern-day Turkey. 
modern-day Turkey, and then you have Greece, and then Italy, and you can see Rome there in the upper left-hand corner. And, and Colossae, in that box above, which is blown up for you, you can see where Colossae is roughly 100 miles to the east of the city of Ephesus, where Paul was ministering. You'll probably recognize a number of other names there, like Laodicea and Hierapolis. These are, these are churches that we read about in other places in the New Testament that have received letters from some of Christ's apostles. So this is the area where the church in Colossae was founded, where it was established, and again, it was founded by this man named Epaphras. And Paul was writing to this church from imprisonment in Rome, and his goal in writing the letter to the Colossians was twofold. Epaphras had come to Rome. The founder of this church in Colossae had come to Rome to seek out Paul for wisdom and counsel because while this church was young, only five years old, it was beginning to experience challenges. Challenges from false teachers that had come in promoting a different kind of Christianity, a false gospel, a false gospel known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this idea that, that matter is evil and only the spiritual world is good, and so we need to reject the, the physical material things of this world and, and put our hope fully in the spiritual now, if matter is evil, one of the implications of this Gnostic teaching is that Jesus Christ couldn't have been fully God and fully man because God is holy and pure and he would have never taken on evil material flesh. And so the Gnostics embraced a false teaching of Jesus Christ. They also promoted this idea that there was secret knowledge and there was secret rituals that one had to do in order to progress into a right relationship with God. And so there was a whole series of these false teachings that Paul was writing to counter here in the letter to the Colossians. We're going to study more of this in the coming weeks. It's fascinating, and it has huge implications because the counterfeits are still with us to this very day. Counterfeit religions, counterfeit cults, counterfeit philosophies that claim to be the truth, claim to be teaching true Christianity, but they're not teaching true Christianity. And so Paul wrote to the Colossians to counter these counterfeit gospels, the counterfeit gospel of Gnosticism, and he did so primarily by elevating a true vision of who Jesus Christ is, Christ supreme. Paul wanted the Colossians to know Christ so well, so clearly, that when they recognized the truth, as soon as the error crossed their paths, they would see it immediately and know it for what it is a false teaching that should be rejected. And so we're going to see Christ elevated through the teachings of the Apostle Paul. And he's then going to encourage these Colossian believers in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This book of Colossians is arguably the New Testament's greatest teaching on Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, one scholar I was reading this week says, if you had only the first chapter of the Gospel of John... The, the, the 19th chapter of the book of Revelations and the book of Colossians, if you had just that, you would have a picture of Christ in his fullness, in his majesty, in his glory. As God and man, our Savior, our Creator, our Lord. And so we're going to see this powerful vision of who Jesus is as we study the book of Colossians together this fall. 
And my hope and prayer for us in this is that as we have this greater elevated vision of Jesus, that it would inspire us to love him more and to worship him faithfully and to live for him more consistently. It all begins with having a proper vision of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Christ supreme. Well, this morning we're going to begin our study of the book of Colossians, looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It's the first half of Paul's introduction to the church in Colossae. Now again, remember, these are people Paul had never met. He knows them only through Epaphras, who had founded this church, who had come to Rome to share with Paul, hey, the church in Colossae is in trouble, Paul. Can you please send them some words of encouragement? And so Paul begins this letter with this introduction that we're going to study over the course of two weeks. This week, we're going to see Paul's introductory comments. Next week, we're going to see a prayer that Paul prays specifically for this church at the outset of his letter. But here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we find his initial greetings to this church. And here's where our sermon is going this morning. In Paul's initial greeting to the Colossian church, we discover some key themes about the whole letter to the Colossians itself. We're going to see three, th- three key themes specifically in Paul's introduction that are going to be woven throughout his letter to the Colossians. Let's read this together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Here Paul provides these introductory comments to the church in Colossae. Now, we're going to be studying more about this church and all of the reasons for Paul's writing to them, but here in this introduction we discover some clues that can help us get a clearer understanding of Paul's purpose and goals in writing to the Christians of Colossae. And in these clues, we're also going to uh, begin to see that Colossians isn't just a letter written to some Christians 2,000 years ago. It's a letter that's just as relevant and applicable to us here today. It contains a timeless message of hope for our world and guidance for living our lives in line with our Creator's will for our lives. We see this in three ways here in the outset to Paul's letter. We see, number one, that Colossians is a letter about gospel people. Colossians is a letter about gospel people. Here in this opening introduction, we come across four different people, actually three people and a group of people. We, we read about the Apostle Paul. We read about a man named Timothy. We read about Epaphras, who founded this church. And then we read about the Colossian believers themselves. These were all gospel people. What does that mean? These were people whose lives were transformed by the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, now 
as we begin talking about what it means that these were gospel people, it's first and foremost important that we understand what the gospel is. That might be a term that's unfamiliar to some of you or, or maybe one that you're not fully sure of what that means. But, but the word gospel simply means good news. And, and the good news is the fundamental message of biblical Christianity. And that message can really be summarized in, in three simple Bible verses. If you know these three simple Bible verses, you can share the good news with anybody. The, the first of these verses that comes to mind when I think about defining the gospel for people is Romans 3.23. In Romans 3.23, another letter written by the Apostle Paul, he says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now you're thinking to yourself right now, well, Jason, I thought you said the gospel is good news, right? I mean, that doesn't sound like good news, but here's the deal. The good news is only good news because... The bad news is really bad news. And the bad news that applies to each and every one of us is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is rebellion against God's will for our lives. Sin is to go our way instead of God's way, our creator's way. And Paul says that every single one of us is born into this world as sinful people. We all sin. We can't avoid it. It's built into our spiritual DNA. We are born into this world as fallen, sinful people in rebellion against our holy creator, God. And the word holy simply means morally pure and perfect. That's God, and we're not. And every single one of us is born into this sinful condition. We're born with a spiritual disease that infects our lives. Now, that's the bad news. Now, the good news is found in the second verse I want to share with you, Romans 6.23. In Romans 6.23, Paul then tells us the good news, the gospel, that while the wages of our sin are rebellion against God, the, the penalty, the payment is death, right? Sin brings death into this world, physical death, spiritual death. Sin causes death. Okay, that's part of the bad news. But the good news, Paul says, is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says that God has made a way for us to be saved from the consequences of our sin, from the, from the consequences of the death that is caused by sin. And the way that God has made for us is through the free gift of his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came into the world 2,000 years ago and went to the cross, he did so to take the payment, the punishment, the penalty for our sin upon himself. He died in our place as the perfect God-man, the perfect substitute, the perfect representative of every single one of us in this room. Jesus took the payment, the penalty of sin upon himself, and he nailed our sin to the cross. And so when God looks upon us, when we trust in Jesus, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees the shed blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sin. And it's because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ when we put our hope in him that we can be reconciled into a right relationship with our holy creator God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here is the question, how do I receive that gift? How do I receive that gift? It's a free gift God offers each and every one of us. How do I receive it? This is where the third verse comes into play. Romans 10, 13. The apostle Paul says, for everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. What does that mean? It means if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you acknowledge, number one, that I'm a sinner living in rebellion against God, number two, that God has made a way for me to be saved through his son's sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection to new life, if you acknowledge that reality, and then thirdly, call upon Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, you will be saved. Friends, those three verses right there are the heart of the gospel, the good news. And it's these truths that had transformed the gospel people that we read about here in our introduction to the book of Colossians. We, we begin with the Apostle Paul. Paul opens our letter by sharing who he is with this group who had never met him. Now, they probably knew of him, right? But Paul opens in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is a man, he's a gospel man who had been transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. We read the story of Paul in Acts chapter 9 where Paul, prior to his conversion to Jesus Christ, was a zealous persecutor of the Christian faith. He was a Jewish Pharisee, a keeper of the law, and he was so convinced that Christianity was a false cult that he made it his mission in life to try to stamp out this new faith. And we read in the New Testament how Paul got permission from the Jewish religious rulers in Jerusalem to go throughout the Middle East and persecute Christians, to arrest Christians. We know that he was complicit in the deaths of Christians. In fact, the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, Paul was there. Paul was there as they stoned Stephen to death. And Paul was on his way to Damascus in modern-day Syria. And on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9 tells us that the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to Paul. The resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul, and Paul recognized the error of his ways. He came to see that Jesus truly was the resurrected Savior and Lord, God in flesh, God's provision for humanity to be, humanity to be saved from their sin. And Paul put his trust in Jesus, and he was commissioned by Jesus as an apostle. The word apostle in the Greek, apostolos, means one who is sent with the authority of the one who sends them. Paul was sent with authority into all the world to share the good news, the message of the gospel. And he had done that faithfully. He had become the world's greatest evangelist and missionary. So, so right at the outset, we see this is a letter written by a gospel person, one whose life had been transformed by the good news. We then read from Paul about Timothy. Now, he doesn't share much about Timothy here. He calls Timothy our brother. Timothy was another gospel person. Timothy was a young man, probably a teenager, Think about that, right? We got some teenagers here this morning. Timothy, this prominent figure in the New Testament, a teenager who came to faith during Paul's first missionary journey, he ended up becoming a key partner in ministry to the Apostle Paul. And Timothy would ultimately become the pastor of the church in Ephesus, one of the most significant churches in the New Testament era. Here's a teenager whose life was transformed by the gospel and set him on a whole new trajectory that led him to becoming a leader in the early church. He was a gospel person, 
transformed by the gospel. We read then next about Epaphras in verse 7 of our introduction. Paul acknowledges Epaphras, the man who had founded this church. He calls him a beloved fellow servant. Remember, in our introduction earlier, I said that Epaphras probably came to faith in around the mid-50s A.D. when Paul was on his third missionary, missionary journey, living and teaching in Ephesus. Paul was there for about two and a half years in Ephesus. And Epaphras, think about this, Epaphras was probably an average ordinary businessman. How do we know that? Well, why would somebody in the ancient world travel 100 miles from home? That's a difficult journey, right? We know that Colossae was a commercial center. It was a town known for producing wool and dyes. And, and, uh, and, and Ephesus was the key commercial hub in that region of the Middle East. So it's very likely that the reason why Epaphras was in Ephesus to, to ultimately encounter the Apostle Paul was he was a businessman there on business, doing business. In the midst of his doing business in Ephesus, he comes across this guy teaching the gospel he becomes a follower of Jesus, and this businessman, Epaphras, ends up going back to Colossae, and what does he do? Well, he's now a gospel person, and he does what gospel people do. He goes and he shares the gospel with his people in his hometown, and other people in his hometown become followers of Jesus, and a church is planted there in Colossae. We then read about the Colossian Christians themselves. Paul addresses the church in Colossae. He calls them saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Saints. The word saints means holy ones. Holy ones not because of anything that they had done, but because of what Christ had done for them. He had made them positionally holy in the eyes of God. And holy means to be set apart unto God's service. And so these saints in Colossae were people who were in the world. They were in Colossae, but in another sense, they weren't of this world anymore. They were now holy and set apart unto God. Paul, Paul then talks about these, these Christians as faithful brothers and sisters. The word in the Greek for faithful brothers can also be translated faithful brothers and sisters. These were men and women who had put their trust in Jesus. And as a result, they had become brothers and sisters, part of the family of God. John chapter 1.12 says that to all who receive Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be called children of God. When you put your trust in Jesus, you become part of God's family. And so now these Men and women were brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus here, okay, and, and I'm assuming most of us in this room are this morning, you are sitting next to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You're a part of God's spiritual family. Just think about that. These aren't just simply friends and neighbors or people who are a part of your small group. No, these are your brothers and your sisters because of what Jesus has done. And then Paul declares that all of this happens because these people were in Christ. In Christ, they had received a new identity, new citizenship, new meaning and purpose to their lives. Now, I want you to think about this cast of characters that we come across here in the introduction. We have Paul, an anti-Christian fanatic. We have Timothy, a young man, probably just a teenager. We have Epaphras, an ordinary businessman. We have the citizens of Colossae, an average, ordinary, run-of-the-mill town. 
And friends, understand, these are the kinds of people the gospel is for and the kinds of people God uses. You don't have to be super spiritual or especially talented or the right age or uniquely gifted or from the right place for God to use you for his kingdom purposes. You simply have to trust in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then walk in obedience as he leads you to his will and plan for your life. And friends, this is good news. This is real good news because it means that God has a place for you in his family. God has a place for all who put their trust in him, in his family. God has a place for you in his church. God has a place for you in his mission. God has a place for you. We, we live in a world today where people are longing for meaning, longing for identity, longing for belonging. And God says to them, I've got a place for you in my family. My daughter Addie came home from school this week, first week of school. She's a sophomore at the high school. We were talking and she said, she said to me, Dad, it seems like there's more goth and LGBT kids at the school than ever before this year. I said to Addie, you know why that is? These kids are looking for a place to belong. They're looking for identity, for meaning. And they're looking for it anywhere they can find it. And the reality is, they need Jesus. They need to know that there's a God who loves them. A God who invites them into his family. That there's a church, brothers and sisters in Christ, that care about them. That God has a mission for them that they can be a part of. Friends, that's the answer to our culture's longing. Our longing for belonging, it's found in becoming gospel people, like we see in the book of Colossians. Second thing we discover as we look at our introduction here is that the book of Colossians is also about gospel produce. Gospel produce. And by produce, I'm talking about the, the produce section in your local supermarket. I really am. Gospel produce is about fruit. It's about the fruit that the gospel brings into our lives. And we see evidence of this fruit here in the introduction. In, in verses 3 through 5, Paul says that since he heard about the faith of the Colossians and their love and because of their hope that they have, he, he says, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. Paul identifies that there were three particular kinds of fruit that were evident in the lives of the Colossians that he had heard in his report about them from Epaphras. What were these three fruit that he, that he saw and heard about? The fruit that was evident in these new Christians' lives was faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Now, now these three fruits of Christianity are the fundamental fruits of genuine biblical Christianity. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to have these fruits in your life. Faith, love, and hope. In fact, over 12 times throughout the New Testament, Paul and other writers in the New Testament highlight these three fruits as being key to legitimate, genuine Christianity and our experience in Christ. You're going to be a person of faith. You're going to be a person of love you're going to be a person of hope and this was true for the colossian christians they had experienced this gospel produce faith love and hope now let's look at each of these fruits that are produced in the lives of believers faith faith is interesting because faith has kind of a past component to it to it 
It has a present component, but faith is about what God has done for us. It's about what God did for us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, our world today talks a lot about faith. You'll you'll hear a lot of talk about faith in our world. You'll hear people say things like, well, just keep the faith. Or you'll hear people say things like, I'm a person of faith. Or you just got to have faith, right? People say, you know, talk about faith all the time. I remember being a kid growing up and George Michael had a famous song called Faith, a popular song called Faith. Because you got to have faith, faith, faith. Ooh, I got to have faith, the faith, the faith. Baby, right? Faith, right? You hear all kinds of talk about faith. But understand this, friends. Faith has no intrinsic value in and of itself. All right? What matters is the object of our faith. What we put our faith in. And this is especially significant when it comes to the question of salvation, to our eternal destiny. Where is our faith? What is the object of our faith? And and so when someone says that that they have faith, you need to ask the question, well, faith in what? Faith in your heritage? Faith in your good works? Faith in reincarnation? Right? True Christian faith is about trusting wholly in Jesus Christ as the sole and sufficient basis for our salvation. That's what true biblical faith is all about. It's trusting wholly in Jesus Christ. One of the great missionaries of the modern era was the 19th century missionary John G. Patton, a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. You you might know those islands by by the contemporary name Vanuatu, right? If you're a Survivor fan, TV show, right? They've been to Vanuatu a couple times for their show. Right? Those are the New Hebrides. John G. Patton was the first Christian missionary to go to the New Hebrides and bring the gospel to these people who were literally cannibals. I mean, if you want to read some great biographical stories of great heroes of the faith, John G. Patton, I mean, stories of this guy like literally fleeing from cannibals. But he set up shop there in the midst of these cannibalistic tribes of the New Hebrides. And he shared the gospel. And he made a foothold there for the gospel. And some of these native peoples became followers of Jesus. And he planted a church there. And he ultimately began to translate the New Testament into the languages of these peoples. John Patton had a particular challenge though. He was trying to find a native word that was appropriate for translating the idea of faith or belief. What what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And he was struggling to find a native word that that matched that idea. Well, one day he was sitting in his hut at his desk working on his translation work, and he was leaning back in his chair. You know how you sometimes do that? You kind of lean back on the back two legs of your chair. He was sitting there thinking, and a native friend came in. And Patton had ideas. He's leaning back in his chair. He says to his native friend, what am I doing? And the native said, well, you're sitting And Patton said, no, 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 what am I doing? As he rocked back on his chair. And the native shared a word with him that meant to lean your whole weight upon. And Patton said, aha, that's the word for faith. That's the word for belief. Friends, this is what Christian faith is. Christian faith is about leaning your whole weight upon Jesus Christ. 
And we do this initially at the moment of our salvation when we put our trust in him. We're leaning our whole weight, our hope in Jesus. But we continue in faith, in gospel faith, leaning our whole lives upon him, trusting in him as we continue to go through life. Paul next highlights the love that the Colossians had come to see grow in their lives, right? The, the produce of the gospel, love. Love is about what God does, us, does in us in the present. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit. See, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes and lives within us. Now, think about that. That'll blow your mind for a while, right? Like, one-third of the triune God is alive in me when I trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. God comes and lives within me. And he begins to produce fruit in my life. One of the fruits that he produces, in fact, it's the first one Paul mentioned in his, in his list, is love. We become people of love through the Holy Spirit at work within us. And Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 34 through 35, that the chief way that the world would recognize that they were his people would be through their love for one another. Jesus says, the world will know that you're my disciples because of the way you love one another. And the Colossian Christians had experienced that. And many of you have experienced that. The love that's found in relationship with other Christians because of what God does in our lives. Now, friends, keep in mind the context of Jesus' teaching here in John 13. This teaching falls right on the heels of Jesus humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant and going around the room washing his disciples' dirty feet. He says, this is love. And this is how I want you to love. I want you to love in humility. I want you to love self-sacrificially. I want you to love the way that you have seen me model love in selflessness, sacrifice, humility. Friends, this is a love that transcends race, culture, economics, geography, politics, education. It's a love that says in Christ we are one, brothers and sisters, part of God's family. And so we love one another. And when the world sees us loving the way Jesus calls us to love, that's a powerful thing, friends. This kind of love was revolutionary in the ancient world. It's the reason why the church spread like a wildfire because the world didn't know this kind of love. A love that trans transcends race and culture and economics, right? Like that, that was unheard of. In fact, the book of Colossians had a sister letter that was written at the very same time sent alongside the book of Colossians to the very same people. It was a letter in the New Testament we know as the letter of Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy businessman in Colossae who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. He had a servant, a bondservant, a slave by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus had run away. He had made his way to Rome. He had, he had encountered the apostle Paul in Rome and became a Christian under Paul's ministry while Paul was in prison in Rome. Paul meets this Onesimus, finds out he's from Colossae, finds out that his master is part of this church. Paul writes a letter to Philemon and says to Philemon, I want you to bring Colos Onesimus back into your household, but not as a slave, 
but as a brother in Christ. Wow. See, that kind of love was revolutionary in the ancient world. And friends, this kind of love is still revolutionary today. In our broken, fragmented, politically divided culture, when the world sees us loving one another as Christ first loved us, that is a powerful testimony. It's what the gospel produces. The third gospel produce that, that Paul highlights here in the lives of the Colossians, he, he speaks of their hope. And hope has a, has a future component to it. Hope is about what God has promised us. Paul specifically says, because of your hope laid up in heaven. It was their hope in the promises of God laid up for them in heaven that produced in them the faith and the love that they were expressing. It was their hope and God's promises. What are, what are God's promises? What, are, what is this hope laid up for us in heaven? If you were with us this past spring, we, we did a series on the end times. And in that series, we talked a lot about the hope laid up for us in heaven. We, we saw, for example, that, that the Apostle Paul tells us that when we die as Christians, to be absent from this body is to be instantaneously at home with the Lord. We, we saw that Jesus promised his church that he's coming again for us one day that he's going to rapture the church out of this world. And the signs of the times are all around us. We, we, we saw that we're going to be rewarded in heaven by Jesus for the way we lived in this world on his behalf. We're going to receive glorious resurrection bodies like Jesus' resurrection body. Satan, sin, evil are going to be forever defeated. There's not going to be any more sickness or death or mourning or pain. All things are going to be made new, and we're going to spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. Friends, this is the hope laid up for us in heaven. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of people most to be pitied. But friends, our hope is not just in this life. Our hope is in what God has promised us. Our hope is laid up in heaven and all of these future things that we have to look forward to. And so we keep our hope in Jesus. Hebrews 6.19 describes our hope as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. I love that image, an anchor for the soul. This past week, I saw a video from the San Antonio Zoo. The San Antonio Zoo had set up a tug-of-war contest between one of their lions and three professional wrestlers. They had this big, thick rope, you know, stretched out between the bars of the lion's cage. And, and the video started out with these three wrestlers. It had these guys, you know, massive guys. I mean, just huge guys. I mean, e e even bigger than me. And, and, and they're... And they're, they're, they're holding on to this rope, and they're pulling with all their might. They're just straining. They're just, you know, these three guys are pulling, and they're not getting anywhere. They're just pulling as hard as they can, these massive men. And then the camera pans over through the cage to the lion, and the lion's literally just like sitting there, like with the rope in its mouth, not even struggling. It was hilarious. And I thought to myself, that's what our hope in Christ is like a sure and steadfast anchor. It's immovable. No matter how much the world around us rages, no matter how much the trials and challenges pull at us, our hope in Christ is firm and secure and immovable. And so we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And then lastly, Paul mentions here gospel progress. Progress. 
We're going to see the book of Colossians is about the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see here in verses 5 through 8 how Paul highlights the reality that in the whole world the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing it. It had already done that among the Colossians. The Colossians had heard the message of the gospel from Epaphras who had heard it from Paul. And, and, and it was spreading. It was going from one person to another. I, I was outside the other day and I was looking at these bumblebees flying around the flowers in my yard. And these bumblebees were flying from one flower to another. And, and, and the bumblebees do that. And in the process of doing that, they're pollinating the flowers. 75% of the world's produce is dependent upon pollinators that go from flower to flower. And on every flower they land on, they drop a little more pollen into that flower. And that's what we're supposed to be like as gospel people. That's how the gospel progresses. Wherever we go to work, to school, in our relationships, we're supposed to be dropping little gospel bits everywhere we go. Through our words, through our lifestyle, through our example. We plant gospel seeds all over. That's how the gospel spreads. That's how it spread to the people in Colossae through Epaphras. This is the mission that God left us with. And remember, friends, the message we bring to the world truly is good news. It's what Paul describes in verse 6 as the truth of God in grace. Paul says here in verse 6, it, I'm sorry, it's the grace of God in truth. The grace of God in truth. And that word in truth is very key because as we continue our study of Colossians, we're going to see that there's true gospels and there's false gospels. This was true in Paul's day and it's just as true in our day. And so we need to know the truth. What is the truth? The truth is the grace of God and the free gift of salvation offered to each and every one of us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's not of works so that no one can boast. This is the gospel that we have to share with our world today. That God has made a way, a free gift of salvation. It's the grace of God in truth. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, are you starting to understand why we're calling this series this fall Christ Supreme? It's because there's no one else like Jesus. There's no gift greater than Jesus. There's no treasure more worthy of our pursuit than Jesus. There's no basis for hope greater than Jesus. Jesus Christ is truly supreme. And my hope and prayer is that you'll come to know that reality this fall more than ever. Let's pray, and then our worship team is going to come up and lead us in a final song this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great letter that we're going to have the chance to study together. Thank you for these powerful truths, and I pray, Lord, that we truly will be transformed as we fix our eyes on you, our Lord, who is supreme over all. Give us a greater vision, Lord, not only of you, but all you've done for us and what you've promised us and what you've called us to as your people. We pray that as we study this powerful letter, Lord, that we will be more inspired to worship, more inspired to, to live faithfully for you, more inspired to share the good news of the gospel with a world that so desperately needs to hear it. We thank you for this time together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.